Beyond the Wrench with Jay Ganinen from Wrenchway. Welcome back to Beyond the Wrench. My name is Jay Ganinen and I am your host. Before we get started, if you've enjoyed listening to Beyond the Wrench, be sure to rate and review this podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. We want to thank you all for listening and really, really appreciate your support. Today, I have with me Matthew Leffler, which if you're on social media, if you're on LinkedIn, you probably have a pretty good idea of of who he is. He is the armchair attorney, along with a bunch of other things. And I'm really excited to get into his background and what led him to where he's at today, because it's a really interesting journey and one that I think is is really helpful for a lot of us. We're going to talk about a lot of things in terms of protecting ourselves and, and, and really, I think, just a lot of really, really good content. So Matthew, how are you doing today? Jay, I'm doing fantastic. Thank you so much for having me on the program. I'm really excited to be here. I've never once talked to you and had you be in a bad mood, I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> There's so much to be excited about. We're, we're talking today, August 9th, but on August 10th, my children go back to school. So I am, <laughs> I'm elated. There's always something to be excited about. And this is this day is no different than any other. That's that's what I love about you. That's what I love about you. So let's let's talk about you to start off things. You've got a really fascinating background in, in one that I think is probably a little non-traditional compared to a lot of others in the industry. So walk us through, you know, what got you into this business in the first place? I love that question. And I'm going to tell you, it's probably a lot more traditional than you might think. So All right. my, for my own self, I'm a lawyer. I've been practicing since 2010 and I defended uh, trucking companies, among other things. But let's talk a little bit before that. My father started with Roadway in 1976. That's before deregulation. That's when 60% of truck drivers and a lot of mechanics were unionized. And we saw with the deregulation in 1980, the industry change. So my father was a maintenance guy. He worked nights at the shops at Roadway managing mechanics. Over time, he was promoted and moved around. He was working in Chicago. He was working in Dallas, working in Southern California. And over that like 15-year career, he kind of built a good reputation for himself. And then he was poached by a company called Airborne. And for folks who don't know who Airborne is, it's DHL today. And DHL, or Airborne at the time, had a business of outsourcing a lot of maintenance. After deregulation, you were able to say, hey, this is something that I'm going to have someone else do, and I'm going to make sure I can control them. But it's not going to be my ultimate liability when it's all said and done, reducing cost. Well, he did Airborne for a few years, or maybe a year and a half or so, and then had the opportunity to bid on a garage to take over a captive shop. And that company he bid on was a company called RPS, Railway Package Systems. And a lot of folks, again, if, you, if you've been in this business for a little while, that's FedEx Ground now. That used to be, <laughs> that is what is now FedEx Ground. And he started a business where he called it Outsource Fleet Services. Very specific name because it was the company you call if you want to outsource fleet services. And we were the largest vendor for ground for about 25 years. And so he started that in 91 and I joined up with him in 2012. So to kind of put a little bow on my background, I was in transportation from the beginning. I saw my father traveling across the country, managing mechanics, the challenges of running big shops, captive shops, 24-7, 365. These are difficult things to do. And we, when I joined him in 2012, we had to diversify the business, get into different types of the customers. So I began working with the LTLs like Old Dominion and Sia, Yes Freight. 
And then we got into some of the more trucking companies like Siva and Landstar and J.B. Hunt, Werner, Swift, Knight, all these great trucking companies. So my background has been on the legal side defending trucking companies. But as time has gone on, I, I want to help reduce the cost of maintenance and have better experiences for mechanics. And that's kind of how you and I first met was you yeah. have this software platform that I said, that's really cool. I want to know about this. So as I get to my final parts of my career, in 2018, we had about 100 mechanics working for us. We were in six different states and we were sold. We were purchased. We helped negotiate that deal with Dickinson Fleet Services. And Dickinson bought us in 2018 and I stayed on with Dickinson for about a year and a half as a VP of sales. I didn't really enjoy that experience. It was, it was a good experience, but it was a challenge. That I wasn't, it wasn't my, my cup of tea, but I had a non-competition agreement and I wasn't allowed to go back into the thing that I knew. And this is why I hate non-competition agreements. They're very bad for your customers. <laughs> They're terrible for everybody. And I had to go to the software business. So I spent a couple of years in software and then I went back into the legal practice that I do today among other projects. So that is at a high level. That's me. I have two children, nine, Michael and six, Rowan. And I have twins on the way and we have an eviction date. It is November 19th. That day they are giving out. They're done. They gotta go. Maybe sooner we'll find out. Uh, then you turn into a family of six overnight. Yeah, we're going to go from man to man to zone. I'm ready for this. Put me in the game, coach. <laughs> well, that's that's really exciting news. I, wh one thing I've always wanted to ask you was what drove the what drove you to become a lawyer in the first place? Like, what was it that that stuck out to you that wanted you to go down that route? That's a really good question. I did my undergraduate degree in political science. I went to University of Illinois, but before University of Illinois, I spent one year at Western Michigan on a track and field scholarship. I was a quarter miler. I love the 400 meters. I was quick, but not the quickest. I was a, a Bronco and they cut the program. So I went to University of Illinois and worked at Best Buy and did other uh, projects. When I graduated in 2007, I didn't want to be an adult yet. And <laughs> my father has, you know, been in the mechanic industry for such a long time, his expectation for all of us was you have to get a postgraduate degree. You have to do something else. So my yeah. brother got the MBA and I said to myself, um, let's go to law school. And so there's a whole process. You take a test, you have to do an application. They have a very high level of people who don't get in. And I was accepted to Michigan State University College of Law. And when I was at the law college, I was able to do a whole lot of really interesting things. I was a, a co-editor-in-chief of our Journal of Business and Securities Law. I was a part of a trial practice institute. I love litigation, presenting in front of jurors or to judges. And I graduated in 2010, magna cum laude. And I went on to practice in the state of Illinois. So today I have a law degree that is for Michigan State, but I'm licensed to practice in Illinois, the Northern District of Illinois, the federal court, and the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals, which is the appellate court above the Northern District of Illinois. So how, how do you juggle all this stuff? Because you, you've got a new opportunity that you're about to tackle as well. I, I mean, you've got with, with the twins on the way, with two kids already – I, I look at you and, and how you're kind of juggling everything and, and just from afar, I'm super impressed because I, I think it's 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 a lot. You've you've got a lot going on. I would say that I I love the challenge, but I'm also a man of faith. And I, I'm a recent convert, so I was I grew up Catholic, but I kind of fell away from the faith. But this year I was baptized. And the analogy I like to give is imagine you're walking you're a little kid walking into a pool and your father's behind you. And you don't know how dangerous the pool is, but you kind of know that there's something behind you that's going to take care of you. That's what I feel. So I walk into this 
pool or this lake or this ocean, and there's always things that are on us that will struggle and cause us you know, trepidation to do something different. But I have faith. And so far, it's working out fine. I stay positive. But yeah, I get bored easily too, Jay. Like if I get bored, I'm like, I got to do something different. I can't just keep doing this. So I, I'm eclectic. So I, I appreciate the feedback in terms of what it is that I do. It's, it's a lot of fun. That's what I main thing is I, as long as I'm having fun and I'm interested, I have no worry about my capacity to handle that weight. Well, in, I, in a lot of ways, I look at it and I, I think there's similarities with me where it, I try to force growth, right? Where like it, it's not something, maybe even something like starting a business isn't the most natural thing for a lot of people. And I think the the things you learn when you kind of force yourself into uncomfortable situations or force yourself into scenarios that you just weren't exposed to before, I think it just helps you learn and grow. Even in fatherhood, I think that's something that has, has forced me to grow as well. And I think all of those scenarios that you're in or the different situations that you're in, it's really cool to see because I, I do think it forces your hand at growth. And even going to law school, I think that that forces your hand at growth. So it's it's just cool to see like how much you you push yourself. And, you know, I'll kind of build off of that is, you know, from someone like you who owns a business and took that risk, I look at how my father's experience was running outsourced fleet services. And we would have time from customers who would say, hey, we're normally net 30, we'll go to net 45, and then they'll be knocking on net 60, net 65, net 75. And you're, you're a cash flow business. And I remember vividly my father having to take out loans off of his retirement accounts to make payroll. I mean, to few people, and you know this because you own the business, but few people realize the things you can't miss in terms of payments are employees and insurance. You, you don't miss those. You miss those, you're done. And so that level of stress, I saw that level of stress. What I do and what I get a, the opportunity to do and help people achieve whatever goal they have, it's nothing like that level of stress. Calling customers and saying, I need you to wire me money today. I, I, one of my things, a quick little story, like one of the things I did when I came on to outsource, you know, I'm a lawyer, right? So I, I started off learning accounts payable and billing and account management and sales, but I also took over the collections and we had collection companies. We were outsourcing it to, and I said, nah, I'll, I'll do it. And every single client who didn't pay me, I sued them. I sued them in court. I remember people would say, $6,000, you're not going to sue me. Oh yeah, I am. Yeah, I am. And I remember vividly having a client who owed me $6,500 and they didn't contest. The work was fine. They were happy with the work. They just, they just didn't want to pay. The first court appearance was Christmas Eve. And they said, okay, are you, are you serious? We're going to meet in court on Christmas Eve? Yeah. Or I'll get a default against you. And they said, okay, what's it going to take to make this go away? Oh, how about you just pay me the money? Oh, is that all you have to do? Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Oh, those are good times, Jay. Those are good times. <laughs> I, 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 similar background in terms of my dad owning a business, a shop growing up that he still owns to this day. And those things that you, you don't think about unless you're in that situation. And, and I, you know, we're from a small town and I never forget like going into a restaurant and my dad just like staring around at like, He's like, well, half this bar owes me money. And I'm like, I don't think you're running your business correctly. Then. <laughs> yeah, so it, it is, I, I, it's just a different world. But I think, you know, I'm thankful that I was exposed to it at an early age. It, I, I think it did a lot for you as well in terms of just being exposed to the business side of, of things and, and, and seeing the importance of, 
you know, having that legal background and how it impacts so much stuff. And it, it, you know, I think even in starting my business, one of the things that I maybe underestimated was the opinion of a lawyer or just counsel of a lawyer. I think there's just so much value in that to make sure you're protecting yourself in in a lot of different ways. And that's really what we're talking about today is how shops can protect themselves, how technicians can pr- protect themselves. And one thing I, I want to start with was something you mentioned earlier, which is non-compete clauses. And we're starting to see some of those with shops trying to get technicians to sign non-competes, yeah. which is kind of crazy to me. I never in my life would have thought that that would be a thing. But talk to me a little bit about the impact of of these agreements and yeah. what maybe to look out for when somebody's you know asking you to sign one. That I love this question. It's a it's an issue very close to my heart. If anyone wants to learn more about non competes in general, there's a website called endnoncompetes.com. I'm a member of End Non Competes. I talk about it often. There's over 30 million Americans, probably up to 40 million Americans, that have signed some version of a non competition agreement. They've been used in sandwich shops where they'll say you can't go make a sandwich within three miles of this store. They do it with mechanics. I know. And I know about people that do them for mechanics. And I have quit jobs because we gave mechanics non-competition agreements. They are unenforceable. They are not allowed to do this to a mechanic under any circumstances. Now, let's talk about what they are. Non-competition agreements are a type of contract that's known as a post-employment restrictive covenant. Very long word. It just means post-employment You don't have a job anymore. We're done. We're not having a relationship. Restrictive. It takes your freedom and says, let's take it away. And covenant, it's a contract. The non-competition agreement has three parts to it. One is how long it goes. Is it a year? Is it a month? Is it two years? The other factor in a non-competition agreement is the geography. How wide is it? Is it just your, your, your city? Is it your county? Is it your state? Is it the nation? Is it the world? And then finally, it's what is it you can't do? So so if you're a business of fixing heavy-duty trucks, non-competition agreement wouldn't stop you from working in an auto parts company or auto repair company. But at the end of the day, these are things designed to make it hard to leave. And if you're a business or a shop thinking about this, the only reason your employee may stay is because of this document. You do not want to have this. More than that, you'll probably lose in court. Now, this is the dirty fact of non-competition agreements. Most people know they're not enforceable at least in terms of like how a mechanic works. Service writers, general managers, a little bit different, but still kind of same idea. And they know that most people will not sue to to make them invalidated. So instead, they just wait or they just stay with the job they don't like. They are terrible for shareholders. They are terrible for customers. They're terrible for your employees. They shouldn't be used, but they are everywhere in every industry. And if they could do it for truck drivers, they would. And they're bad. They're just bad for everybody. I think so. I've I've had a non compete before, right? And and actually, before I started the company, and I got it right. I was a, a, a executive level member of a, a large dealership in Wisconsin, and I, I got it. Like they didn't want me to leave and take all their trade secrets to a competitor, that kind of thing. I don't quite get it with mechanics, but the the one thing that I was worried about 
And I didn't even do business in Wisconsin to start with, like for a year. Like I, I had gone across the country. That's probably what forced us to go nationwide right off the bat was that I was kind of afraid of it. And I wasn't afraid of the non-compete. What I was afraid of was getting tied up in court and, yes. and being a, like having legal fees associated. And I think that's probably a lot of people, right? Like they, they are afraid that, Hey, I'm going to go up against this company. And they've got a lot more money than I do, and they're just going to try and tie me up in court as long as they can. I I don't know if that's accurate or if that's even like a, a real worry. I wasn't actually all that worried about it because I wasn't doing business in in this area, but it is something that crossed my mind. And I, I you know just being fully transparent, that was one of the things where I was like, oh man, you know if I do this and they take me to court, they could tie me up, and and I you know wouldn't have a business anymore because they'd use all my assets to, to, to fight that. So that's a great point. I'll kind of walk you through how these things work. So we see it a lot more in the enforcement side with people in a more salesy kind of role, like a freight broker or an outside sales rep for a truck repair company or something like that. And first, let me distinguish non-competition from non-solicitation. Non-solicitation is another form of a post-employment restrictive covenant, that special term. And all the non-solicit says is, don't recruit my colleagues. Don't recruit my employees. And don't go call on my customers. Don't do that. The non-solicit does not stop your former coworkers from coming to you or your former customers from coming to you. You can't reach out. They can reach in. So non-solicits are a different kind of animal. There's still some challenges in that, but we'll, we'll table that one. So how a non-competition enforcement action works typically is you are doing your new job. Maybe you get a letter. Maybe the letter says you have a document that says you can't do this and we're going to sue you. Maybe they send it to your new employer. Maybe your new employer fires you because they're scared of litigation. But let's say they're not. The next thing that happens is someone serves you process. This is a terrifying experience. A sheriff comes to your home or they come to your work and they give you a piece of paper saying, hey, you're being sued. And to your point of how much does this cost? <laughs> it's not cheap. No. It's not cheap. You you get to court, and these are generally things you don't have insurance for. So like your your liability for your rental apartment or your liability for homeowners isn't going to cover this. This is out-of-pocket spend. And you could be embroiled in litigation for weeks or months or years. You might spend $10,000, or more. One of the trends that we see right now that I'll call out right here is when a new employer indemnifies and protects the new hire. We saw this in Chicago, a company called Forkites. Forkites, I hope you're listening. I love you guys. They had two people that quit. One of them had been there for less than six months. And they went to another company called Project 44. Project 44, I like you. You're a good company. And they got into a litigation. And Forkites sued the former employers for employees for leaving. And Project 44 paid the bills, hired the lawyers, and won. That's awesome. And we'll see more of that. But to, to answer your point... A mechanic will likely never be sued by their former company. It would be such a bad publicity for that act. And they know it's not enforceable. But the, again, the dirty secret, they know it's not enforceable, but they also know that most mechanics are not going to go call a lawyer and say, can you look at this document for me? Because I don't know what I signed and then have a whole fee to, to deal with that. It's crazy, man. It's crazy. It is. And that's, that's some of what I think this, this advice is so good. And, and not only just for the technician, but let's go to the employer side and try to figure out maybe uh, why 
some feel that this is so important to have, even from a like for a a mechanic technician. Yeah, I I don't quite understand it myself, and I'm trying to wrap my hands around it because it's so hard to find these people as it is, and now you're adding a different barrier. You are gonna. I think once we describe why an employer thinks this way, it'll make complete sense. I want you to think of a non-competition agreement as a tool in your tool chest. Not a great tool, but it is a tool. And if you're trying to chase away retention problems, so you want to try to encourage people to stay longer, you are going to look at every single tool that's at your disposal. And a non-competition agreement is a tool that you can use. Now, in some cases, you might pay separately for that non-competition agreement. Say, hey, you did a sign-on bonus. It's going to be $10,000. But you have to either refund that if you leave. And if you you leave, you have this non-competition agreement, keep the money, but you can't go off and do your profession. So as a business owner, you think, what are the different things I can do? And you'll talk to a lawyer and a lawyer might say, well, here's the contract you can use that says they can't go compete against you. So now you can also compete against your competitors by taking things from the talent pool. So you look at this tool and say, what will it do? Well, it'll stop my employee from leaving, number one. And number two, they can't go for a competitor, so they can't take my customers. So it looks like a really useful tool. But if every problem you have looks like a nail, then the tool will always be the hammer. And non-competition agreements are vastly overutilized. And I think a lot of firms get bad advice that they should use these things. But if you're in a position where 70% of your mechanics leave every year, you're going to look at everything and say, what can I do? What can I do? Not realizing that, you know, it's not an ethical thing to have. And that same point, Jay, is I might be an employer and make everyone sign non-competition agreements, but I'll never sue them. But half of them won't compete with me because they, they're too scared. I still get the outcome that I want. So you got to, this is a, I always say this with a little grain of salt, but companies are not good or bad. They are amoral. They are outside of ethical considerations. A company exists to maximize shareholder value, minimize costs and maximize revenue. And you make decisions based on those things. So it's not they're being mean or being awful. It is that they're making what they think is a good business decision. I just think it's a dumb decision because it makes you look like a monster. Yeah, I I agree with you, especially when it comes to mechanics. It's not like they're taking any intellectual property or they're not taking the they're probably taking their training, right? Like whatever you yeah. train them, like that's the one thing you've got invested into them over and above what their salary is. I, I just don't get it. Well, that's a great point you make, which is about like, what is a trade secret? So many people seem to conflate price and cost structure with a trade secret. I'm sorry, everybody. It's a commodity. I can find any part, <laughs> any part through either find it parts, through Amazon, through eBay. It's not not intellectual property. It's just a thing. And what you charge a customer is the same thing. I would routinely call my competitors and find out what their rates were for door rate or for contract rate. I would drive by their yards and see what equipment was there and say, which company is sending work out. Then I would call that company and say, Hey, I, I would love to help you outsource maintenance. And this is the reality is that People think that their pricing or their way of customer acquisition is secret. No, it's not. Not even close. Not even close. But again, we have business owners that just don't think about that way. They think that, well, I've always done it this way, and clearly I must be the best, so this is all secret. No, it's a 10% markup above cost or 25% markup above cost. I don't care. It's a a markup. It's not magic. 
No, it's Man. not. And it, it's so funny to me because we see that on on the end of shops trying to not be transparent with their salary ranges of what yeah. the techs are making. And I, I, we hear from these techs all the time. They're like, yeah, owners don't think we know. We know. Like, we we talk. Like, we, I, yeah. all of their friends are techs. So they're talking to their friends that are techs and they know what people are making and and so it always makes me kind of chuckle when a when a shop uh, when they're maybe looking at coming on our platform is like I, I'm not comfortable sharing salary information. And I'm like they already know. Like you might not like it, but they already know. Well, and this is actually a, a, a broader trend in all of a U.S. based businesses is not being transparent on compensation. And there's a lot of reasons for that. And one of the key reasons they don't want to tell you what the range is is because in many circumstances, they're going to pay more for new talent and yep. keep existing talent down. And they have an incentive to make it as opaque as possible because they don't want you in this. Now, for years, there were companies that have in their handbooks, like, you will be written up if you discuss your salary. Like, that's illegal, generally speaking. <laughs> you can't actually do that. But the the bigger piece, and this doesn't apply as much to mechanics as it does in other industries, but this is worth calling out, is a lot of ways you predict future compensation is what your past compensation was. So if you were a woman making less money and you come to a role that's mostly men and they look at their peers, they're going to say, based on your last compensation, we'll give you a 10% bump and you'll still make more, but not knowing you're making way less than everybody else. So these are all techniques to, at the end of the day, keep it so that people make less than they should. Now, the nice thing about like big fleets, for example, like they have pay scales, like and big Big deals. They have pay scales. They're going to yeah. tell you, this is how much you're going to get paid. And you say, here's the way to make more. You can work night shift. You can do some credits. You can get some additional training. We can give you bumps that way. But I, I'm with you. I mean, if you don't have the listing of how much something is going to pay, don't try to hire and just get out of the business. Like, you don't know what you're doing. Like, you don't know how this works anymore. There's the internet. What? We all know. <laughs> this this internet thing doesn't seem like it's going away. No. It's catching I, on, I, I've heard. <laughs> it's catching on. But- I get it from a shop standpoint because you want to take care of the people in in house. You also need to get new talent, and maybe you start to see that hey, that new talent, even for a lesser skill set, might cost me more than what the people are costing or what they're what they're what you're paying them to be in the shop is less than maybe what the market commands. And the one thing that I always say is be careful there because. If that's the case, there are recruiters all over the place. There are people that are constantly looking for new talent. That Those people that were loyal to you and, and have, you've treated right, when you start to bring in people that are getting paid more than them and maybe they have a lesser skill set and they find out about it, they're gone. Yeah. I mean, this is the the, the fact we have with our sh shop. So I, we our major thing was fixing trailers. And so there's not a trade school in this country that says – this is how to fix trailers. And there's 5 million of, of these commercial trailers in the country. There, there's a lot to be done. But we'd have the trailer mechanics who were getting paid, let's say, 25 bucks an hour. And to hire new people, like they're not moving for under, under 28. I mean, they're, they're, they're going to be at a higher level. And you have to make these decisions of, okay, our labor rate to the customer is 75. There's not a lot of delta here for all the different efficiencies we have to deal with. And the, the rule that I've always kind of gone with, and it, don't take this as, as, as gospel, but like a third of the labor rate is going to be that mechanics compensation, like the, the top end. Like, and then you have like the benefits that get factored in all this, but ultimately 40%, 60% or so of your door rate is going to labor and then all the other ancillary things. 
So you have to have those conversations with your customers. Say, look, this is not the way it used to be. Like you don't get the mechanics like this anymore. We've told people for the last 30 years, if you're turning a wrench, you're making a mistake. And now we have this, this challenge. So cost of maintenance will go up. The thing I can do for you is I can fix my markups on the parts and I can offer you some standardization of how I bill you. So we have some control aspects, but this market's different than it used to be. Now the, the 75s of three years ago might be 90 or 95 and good gracious, you dealers with your 200s, you make more than lawyers do. I'll tell you that right now. My, my billing rate for workers' compensation was 150. This is crazy. It's a different world. <laughs> different world. Well, the... I think the way that you stated that was was so beautiful because it was you explained to your customer why a price was going up and it wasn't like you were trying I, I see so many shops that are like oh, I'm going to try and slide this this pay rate or this this door rate chain under the table and I don't want anybody to really think about it I don't want to post it but what you did was kind of the opposite of that. You just hit it head on. You're like, listen, it's going to go up and this is why it's going up. And we can't, we, in order to find the people to maintain your equipment and not to mention the tooling has gotten far more expensive. Like there's just so much more overhead that goes into it than 30 years ago, right? Like it, it, yeah. there's just so much more to this. What I love about, like, as you call this out, like, I love hard conversations. My, my companies I work yeah. with were big, sophisticated entities that had control over what they did. And I was always very clear. You're not going to have me slide a fee in. I'm not going to have a, a new fee to cover my cost. I'm going to come in with a quarterly business review. Every quarter, you're talking to me, hopefully more often than that. But if we're talking on a, a cadence, the quarterly reviews when we come in. And I say, look, here's the reality. I love working on your equipment. I love the op opportunity to be a partner for your program. However, we are meeting some really interesting market trends that we are having trouble addressing. And because of that, the cost of labor is up. The cost of insurance is up. We all know how, health, how expensive health insurance is. And we need to make sure that our mechanics have things like paid time off. We need them to have the ability to decompress. We can't just go out there and have no benefits for our people. But that comes at a cost. And in the next quarter, in the next quarter, I will raise your rate. But I want you to know this because if you have to control costs, you need to find a different vendor because I can't do it at the price we've done before. I tried to do rate increases once every two years. And that was before COVID because it was easier to kind of manage those costs. But I love losing a customer if they don't value my people the way that I do. Because if they don't, I don't need to work with you. There's 5 million of those stupid trailers out there. There's millions of trucks. I don't need you. I love to have your money coming in. We have that same conversation of net terms. Like, hey, at what point did I say I can't make that service call for two weeks? Why are we at net 65? But that's the conversation you have to have. And that's what you want from your, your, your salespeople and your leadership because we are partners of the fleet. I use this phrase. I, I mean this 100%. No one loves that equipment more than the fleet owner does. No one loves it more than them. I'm a close second. I watch every single trailer walk through my shop. If the rivet lines don't look like the factory, pull it down, do it again. We care about our customers, but we have to have them care about us. And that's how you have those really hard conversations. And then you get that 5% or whatever number increase you need. I Yeah, I, I just, I, I love the fact that you think that way. I, I think that is so much more, I don't know, like from a from a business owner standpoint or from a even like a, a a vendor standpoint 
it's nice to be able to forecast. It's nice to be able to understand like what the needs are going to be from both ends so that you are on the same page. And when you view it as a true partnership, I think that's when you have the most impact. I've always said that with our business too, is that when you have that true, that true partnership, that's when things take off. If you're fighting against your vendor all the time, or if you're, you know, it's, it's a back and forth and it just, it, it, there's some distrust, I think that's driven there. And I, what you're talking about is true partnership. And I think that's, that's where as a, as a business, people can change their, their way of going about it a little bit and maybe have more success. Absolutely. I mean, the thing that we all want as shops, I believe is preventative maintenance. I, I love doing that broken mud flap. I love doing that regen on your truck. But what I really want to do are those PMs. I want to help you yep. not have unplanned maintenance events. And so every conversation that I start off with when it comes to maintenance is first, what's your planned maintenance percentage? Like how often is the stuff that you pay for planned versus unplanned? And I say, this is how I want to get you to a place where you're doing more planned stuff. Because for us shop owners, planned maintenance is margin. Like that's that's where the money is. Like we want to catch margin. that. Yeah, we want to capture that broken light now before it goes and gets loaded and is waiting to get transloaded because it can't go out safely. So all of these conversations around how I can control my cost and how I can help my customer, that labor rate conversation also becomes a, if we can catch this stuff earlier, we have the ability to keep your costs lower, control your cost. I would love talking with my customers about their cost per mile. And maybe I wasn't the main provider for them. It was just an ancillary piece. But I care deeply about controlling cost. And if we can get that maintenance coming into our shop, that's the relationship. That's the, I know this trailer. I know this truck. I know this driver. I know what they want. And that experience becomes what your client thinks about. And that's what you care the most about is you have that relationship with transcends the labor rate and the, the vendor and the, the hiring entities relationship. You want that. We're partners, man. We're in the same boat. We want your stuff working because your stuff working means we get paid later. We need this. One of the things we do at Wrenchway is help technicians find great places to work. If you think your shop is a top shop, we want to hear from you. Wrenchway top shop pages are like resumes for shops. They share all the details technicians want to know about before they apply, such as compensation ranges for all levels, photos and videos of the service area, videos of technicians and managers, and frequently asked questions on work environment, career development, and hiring process. Attract more technicians to your shop by becoming a Wrenchway Top Shop. Visit Wrenchway.com to contact us and learn more. Link is in the show notes. Now, shops are not the safest places to be. And in, in when I say that, I think most shops have come a long way in terms of driving safety and, and showing priority to it and not just doing it because the insurance person comes in once a year and tells you what you're supposed to be doing, but because they want to keep their people safe. And I think that's changed a lot uh, over the last few decades anyways. And I'm curious as to when we when we dive into the liability side of things, and, and this is something that kept me up at night when I was running shops was, you know, I wanted people to go home in the same piece they came, you know, in the same form that they came in in the morning. And it was one of those things that always terrified me, both from the health standpoint, making sure that they're, they're you know, they're leaving in the same condition they came in, but also the the other side of it and the business side of it, which was 
you know, if somebody gets hurt, my mod rate's going to go up. Or, yeah. it, you know, th- th- there's just so many different things that a shop has to has to combat. I want to kind of hear your opinion on on how a shop should go about handling all of the liability in running a shop. And this is a very broad question, yeah. but one that I think we can kind of dive into some different pockets. So does that make sense? Like yeah. a, being able to, to understand liabilities and, and really how you go about protecting yourself? So let's give it a, a kind of a bird's eye view of what workers' compensation does, what an X modifier means, and how that impacts both the mechanics who are working and then the shop owners or shop management who have to see this stuff every day. So in any state, you must carry a form of insurance. It's a mandatory insurance policy called workers' compensation. It's a separate line item of what you have to spend. It's not your general liability policy, though it may be by the same entity that insures both. Workers' compensation is the exclusive remedy in many states of anything that happens when it comes to being injured as an employee from a company. So you can't go to court and say, I got my hand cut off. I need to go to the civil court. No, no, you start with workers' compensation. Workers' compensation is a massive schema in every single state, and it is designed to process any injuries that take place. When an injury takes place, there's all these reporting requirements you do to both OSHA in some circumstances, but to your carrier, your your workers' comp carrier. Every injury will last on your policy. I believe it's three years, but I'm not positive. You talk to your broker, they'll tell you, of your X modifier. Your X modifier is what makes you have more levels of cost to your insurance. The more injuries you have, the more expensive it is to insure the business. And you'll have sophisticated customers that will say, we want to see your X modifier because if you say you care about safety, we're going to prove it and you're going to show us. And if you're not, we're not going to work together. So workers' compensation and safety is one of the most important ways to control some aspect of your business. And when it comes to safety, you must never compromise. You can't compromise. You can't compromise. So the things you have to have, the most common injuries in our profession, mechanics, of course, backs, necks, arms, legs, all of these things, eye lacerations from blowing out trailers or all sorts of things, cut resistant gloves are are key. So the, the the three things you have to wear all the time is a set of safety glasses, composite shoes, and ear protection. And every single time you see someone not doing it, You have to talk with them about it. And they may get really mad at you because they don't want to do it. And they say, I don't care. But if anyone has a shop with mechanics that have been there for 20, 30 years, you know how this works. You know what happens to the body. And so the things like cut-resistant gloves, why are they so important? That is how you make money as a mechanic. If you lose these things, you don't get new ones. Now, in workers' compensation, we know exactly how much everything costs. Every, we have a book, we have a book that says this injury is that amount of money. That's what workers' compensation does. It says, how much money will I give you for the pain you've endured? We're not going to fix you. We might try to help you recover, but we can't replace things like that. So you get one set of hands, one set of eyes, one set of feet. You lose those things. You are not going to be as capable at your profession. Workman's comp, I feel like, is misunderstood a lot amongst, you know, small business owners, even some of the, maybe not so much the bigger businesses. I think they they typically have an HR staff that has a pretty good idea of, of, you know, what that is. I know 
when I was on the in the dealer world, that was one thing we talked about a lot. We looked at Madrate every single month, and <laughs> yeah, even did. got down to the point to where, yeah, well, and got down to the point where you know one year hand lacerations were our number one injury. So then we had bought glove two pairs of gloves for every single technician, yeah. and then gave parameters around this is when you wear the gloves. And we were very much we were. Uh, very strict on the safety glass policy. You know, you got called out if you if you weren't wearing safety glasses or written up. And I think one of the things they did well was that from the ownership down, they they made it a priority. They respected the rules. They didn't think that they were special when they went in the shop and not wear safety glasses. Right. You know, they they took it seriously. And I think that's so impactful because they need to know why they have to wear safety glasses. You know, we're we're trying to protect you and and eye injuries are awful. I, I've been around people that have had eye injuries and it impacts your entire life. There is nothing you can do about it. And I you know, so you talk about that, but then also it's not just saying it, it's it's walking the walk too. Like if you're going into the shop and you're an owner or you're a, an executive and you're not wearing safety glasses, but then telling everybody else to wear safety glasses, that's not a good look. I mean, to, to your point, like our policy was pretty draconian. If you committed a safety violation, you weren't going to be eligible for a bonus. Like, I don't want to mess with your money. I don't want to mess with your money. But, and this is kind of, let me dive back a little bit. So before I went yeah. to work in-house for, my, for my, my maintenance company, I was doing insurance defense work. And some of the work I did had to do with workers' compensation and, and manufacturing injuries. And we represented a company with, with a chemical that was the smell and taste of butter called diacetyl. And diacetyl allegedly in certain concentrations can cause irreversible lung damage. And so every worker had to wear respirators, dual cartridge, NIOSH approved respirators. And even then they weren't as effective as you'd like them to be. And you'd have people in their early thirties who would have to have bilateral lung transplants. And when you get a lung transplant, one of two things happen in five years, either you die or you get another lung transplant because they don't last. And so when you, as a lawyer, my job is to stare into the abyss and say, what's the worst thing that could happen? Because that's the only time you talk to me. Like, you don't call your lawyer and say, hey, let's talk about the weather. Like, you know, how much does the weather conversation cost these days? It's like 300 bucks. No, you call us when things are not going great. And so walking into these shops and seeing this stuff and seeing the, the, the challenges of safety, yeah, no one wants to wear the glasses when it's super hot and you can't see and you just want to take them off just for a second and you put them back on. Or the more importantly for me is the ear protection. If you get tinnitus in this space, it doesn't go away. And nearly every mechanic who's in their 50s and 60s has some level of tinnitus. My father has bad tinnitus from years of being in the room when they're bucking rivets. And so you have to be cognizant now of it. You have to be cognizant and force it now. And if you do that, you can sell that to your customers. You can buy new companies that would brag about their XMOD and say, that's why we're more expensive because we're safer. And you don't want to have someone who's not safe working on your equipment, but it's a, it's a great call out you have because workers' compensation is this like albatross. Every business hates to talk about. They hate dealing with people who file claims against them, but it's a very important thing to keep mechanics safe. And it's designed to help when those catastrophic things happen. And they will because this industry, this business is not easy. It's a, a brake drum weighs, what, 75 pounds? Like it's not easy to do any of this stuff. Have you seen fraud in workers' comp? And when I say that, we I, I had battled that with one particular case. It was very interesting 
because it was a new employee said that they hit their head on an enclosed trailer on our property. And, you know, the, the person was there maybe like three weeks. And then we started looking backwards and started seeing like he had at one point created a basically an alias as a different person and had a GoFundMe page for a completely different, it was a different employer and kind of a different scenario, but all kind of along the same lines. And I think he just kept going along and getting paid for different things. And, and you know, when we started uncovering it, I'm like, oh my gosh, this this is a straight up professional fraud. Like he 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 lives this life. And I'm like, this is I didn't hire the guy. I remember the owner hired the guy on the spot. And and like, as soon as I met him, I'm like, something feels off here. And then all of this stuff started happening. And it was like, oh my gosh, this is real. Yeah, it's not atypical. So just to kind of look at how workers' comp works, about I, I don't know the numbers. I think it's about 5% might be fraudulent claims or some level of that. And so it's, it's minor, but it is a big part of it. We would have fraudulent claims or dealt with fraudulent claims that were people who were pain seeking, like they were looking for medications. And so they would, they would have an injury or they'd fake an injury to get the medications. We'd have a lot of people who'd moonlight. So in the mechanic space, I'm fixing cars on the weekend. I twerk my back. Actually, I think it happened on Friday when I was at the shop. I'm pretty, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's when it happened. So the uh, late reporting is a big thing. So this is like for a shop and for employees and mechanics too. If you get injured, report it right away. Report yeah. it right away. And I'll, I'll write you up if you don't report it in the same day that it happens. Now, granted, sometimes you won't really know. So you don't report it. You're like, ah, it's not that bad. I'll, I'll wait over the weekend and see how I feel. The other part I think is fun is we have social media now. Like we have our insurer would know because there's there's a type of person that does these types of fraudulent claims. And they're, they're, they're pulling your socials. If you think they're not on your Facebook page or your Twitter or your TikTok, they are. And we'll take videos of you doing things saying, oh, you're dancing here. That, that doesn't look like you have a, a, a an impact on those vertebrae. I don't, I don't see that happening. And then you have settlements that, that come from these things. I would say, and the thing I would caution everyone to think of is never attribute malice to what can be explained by incompetence. A lot of people in the business will think most comp claims are bogus. Most comp claims aren't real. You should just go to your normal general practitioner, do your thing. Comp, if I'm not mistaken, is like two-thirds your salary without any taxes. That's just what you get to be fully out of work. For companies that want to try to combat this and try to not necessarily combat like paying a bunch out for the comp, but have job banks of things that are limited restrictions of what someone can do. So you can do inventory if you're injured. You know, you can't go turn the wrench on that shot on that, on that truck, but why don't you come back here and we'll count screws for a couple of days. Or one of the best things I've ever seen is giving them the opportunity to go do community service or go do a volunteer work and say, look, I'm going to pay you directly as a W-2. You not going to be on my comp. I'm going to pay you myself as an employer paying you as an employee, but I want you to go to a soup kitchen. And, and do work in that space. If, you're, if your body can handle it, we can still do more. Because as an employer, generally speaking, you would rather have that liability be paid as, a, as an earned income as opposed to coming out of your workers' compensation claim because that claim is what affects your XMOD. And that's the whole point of the XMOD is say, keep the claims low, keep them all safe. That's a great question, Jay. I love that. I love talking about comp. It's fascinating. Well, and uh, the way you explain the mod, the X mod is, it, it almost feels like it's a, a credit score for injuries, right? Or it's a credit score yeah. for safety of, of a business. And we have the same thing in the, on the trucking side. There's the FMCSA and they, and they have these, when you get out of service, you get inspecting of something that's, that's bad. That's on your record for two years. Like that's on the driver's record and that's on the equipment owner's record. So we, we know that when you commit a 
when something happens, it doesn't just go away. It, it lasts for a period of time and has an impact on how you buy insurance and how you're rated. You can even have companies that say, I won't insure you anymore. You're too risky. And then they just kick you off. It's interesting. If you're enjoying Beyond the Wrench, remember to follow and rate our podcast to help support the show. Right now, we'd like to give a shout out to this week's sponsor, Sonic Tools. Sonic Tools' direct distribution model offers affordable prices without sacrificing quality and service. Their goal is to increase the efficiency of every technician with equipment solutions and Sonic phone system that organizes quality tools in ways that award every technician with the opportunity to excel. Visit sonictoolsusa.com to learn more. One of the things I think that is getting more and more concerning to a, a new age technician is their personal liability. And I, I want to take some time to just chat about that because when I say personal liability, say they fix something and they fix a set of brakes and the brakes fail, you're on the trucking side, maybe that creates an accident with a, a family and it's just, you know, it's a bad situation. How do how do technicians, mechanics, how do they understand what their liability is when they're going into work every day? So the thing to keep in mind is you are going to be covered by your employer's general liability policy. So how that works is whatever thing you do as an individual, it's actually your business that did it. That's who's actually responsible. And so what will happen in a catastrophic, let's say it's a wheel runoff, and it, it goes off the, the highway, crosses the median, hits some, some poor... Uh, hypothetical person's vehicle and it has a catastrophic accident. You're suing the company who did it, who did the, the repair and maintenance. You as an individual may be deposed. They may come in and say, we're going to talk to you specifically. They may even name you individually, but it's your employer's general liability that will cover as much of the damages as possible. Now, is there a possibility for you to be personally liable for something very, very unlikely, very unlikely, unless you did it intentionally or you were grossly negligent. And think of grossly negligent as, ah, I just drank a fifth of whiskey and I'm going to do a break job. Like, yeah, don't do that. Just just go home. Just, just don't, don't come in. We're fine. Stay home. That's the main thing to look at is it's a general liability policy of the company. Now, we've had wheel runoffs at my organization and that's an automatic termination. Like, you're not going to be held responsible. You're not going to be sued, but you're going to lose your job. So we always encourage everyone that those standard times that we talk about for repairing something, that includes picking up, cleaning, and inspecting it when you're done. Like It's not like do it really fast and get to the next one. It, it's, a, it's a process. But that's the way I would look at that potential liability for an individual mechanic. What about, what about the states where marijuana is legal? I, I know I've talked with some shops where that's becoming more and more of a concern. If you look at Colorado, I think I, I know I've talked to a lot of folks in the Denver area that, that, that own shops. I'm interested to hear, you know, in that scenario where you've got a wheel runoff and uh, the individual had smoked marijuana that morning, yeah. uh, it's legal, but in what context? I, I mean, I, I have to assume that it's in the same realm as, as alcohol in terms of when you talk about grossly neg negligent, uh, does that kind of fall in the same wheelhouse there? It, it certainly can. Now, marijuana is really interesting. So there are a number of states that have made some version of medical marijuana or general decriminalization or to some extent legalization. In those states, in many circumstances, alcohol abuse has gone down or alcohol consumption has gone down. 
as an employer, I don't want anyone working on my property that is in any way inebriated, whether you're on pills or you're on pot or you're on booze. I just don't want you here. The thing about pot, which makes it so different than other ones, is it stays in your system longer. I mean, in terms of like the hair testing. So what we see on like the DOT side of things, like it's a, it's a, it's a urine test right now. There's, there's pressure to adopt a hair follicle test. I'm vehemently against that. I think that's a bad decision. But I do think that marijuana is better than some of the prescription pain pills that are out there, the opioids, in terms of addiction and in terms of like just general safety for what they do. Now, that being said, don't smoke pot and come to work. But if you're going to get on the weekend, I couldn't care less. I couldn't care less. I just don't want you coming in and being unsafe. So if there's an accident, that's a a good point we didn't really talk about. What happens next? Well, generally, after something like this happens, that employee is going down to the – they're going right now. And if they can't drive, manager's driving them. You are – you are going to the clinic. And that's for any injury or any event. You just have to know this at the time of, that you can. And typically, it's going to be a urine test. They're not going to typically draw blood. They're not typically going to do hair follicle testing. You could request that, obviously. But I, that's how I would look at this. So I think we do a disservice to our industry, I think, when we do something like hair follicle testing at entry-level employees because – this is a trend in force that's changing. It's a Schedule One narcotic, not for any good scientific reason. It's there for a very specific political reason. And I don't think that political reason is going gonna, is gonna to last for the next five, ten years. Yeah. Is there a time when a an individual should reach out to an attorney? Like, an, 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 And maybe not even just that scenario, but broadly, you know, I think – Again, talking to protect themselves, I think most businesses have a pretty good idea of when they should be talking to an attorney, and most of them probably actually talk to an attorney fairly consistently or at least have a good relationship with their own attorney. But I don't think individuals really know that side, and and maybe it's just a terrifying thing to even think about. Well, I'd actually, I'll push back on the employer side too a little bit. First, on the okay. employer side, you need to think about your business as a, as a commercial vehicle, and you have to do preventative maintenance on a commercial vehicle. That's the same with your legal business. You need to have information regularly about changes in the law, look at how your contracts work. I, I was on a, a podcast not long ago about the biometric privacy act and the liability employers face trucking companies specifically that use like the fingerprint to scan in to clock in and not realizing the liability that's there so as a business i would say at least once a year you meet with your attorney maybe quarterly if you if you have the bandwidth to just do an evaluation of what you're doing for an individual there's only a few things to be thinking about consecutively with your lawyer usually it's estate planning where's your will at do that thing that you said you were going to do you need to prepare yourself for those things in any you know as you become older and you have more problems like we all do, you want to have a good relationship with a lawyer, a CPA, and a doctor. And there's like your three people that will tell you, you know, how to run your life. But the estate planning thing is really important. I think anytime you have real estate transactions, some states mandate having a lawyer, some states don't. So those are times when lawyers are useful. And then anytime that you, you're being asked to sign something that you don't understand. And this is hard because it might be expensive to, to get someone to look at a contract. But I'm telling you, man, if you sign those non-competition agreements, they may be enforceable against you. You don't know. And that's why it's important to get a lawyer to come in from time to time and take a look at what you're up to. But those are the probably the most important things. If you get injured, call a lawyer. 
Yeah. The I think the one that I was really pointing to there was the the non-compete agreements and and making sure that you have have your ducks in a row there and know what you're signing. I think that's the the biggest point is I, I think I I've got a lot of friends that are attorneys and and when I talk to them about this types uh, this type of thing that's like they hand me the paper and they said this is what it says you can sign it if you want you don't like you don't sign it if you don't like i'm just telling you what it says oh and here's the advice i give to everybody and this again not intended as legal advice get an attorney to get legal advice don't sign it I, I negotiated every single one of those away. I was on teams where some people signed them and some people didn't. And most HR groups are gonna be like, oh, they don't want to sign it? Fine, whatever. I don't care. Like That's just a, a hiring thing. They don't know why they do it. They just, they've been doing it for five years. They're, they're thinking about getting rid of it. But negotiate it. Negotiate everything. Like you negotiate tool stipends or tool insurance or continued training or time off or labor rate or what you're going to be paid, all that stuff. Negotiate these contracts. You can say, I'll sign your non-competition, but I want 20 grand. And maybe they'll say, sure. Maybe they say no. But I would always say, don't sign them. Get yourself time to review. So if they say, sign it today, you say, I need at least a week to review this. And just buy yourself time. Look at it carefully. And then the three things you look at, how long, for how wide, and then for what is it that I can't do? Those three things are the things you negotiate. Every one of them. It says two years. How about two months? It says the entire state. How about five miles from the shop? It says it's only for, it's for all mechanical repair mains. How about just for this specific OEM? I, I don't know, but you can negotiate anything. Anything's negotiable. So the, I, this is a really vague question, but give us some advice and maybe more of a, not even a question, but <laughs> advice on negotiating in general. I just, for anybody, for anybody out there, I, from a lawyer, what yes. are, what are some good tips for negotiation? All right. Every single thing is a negotiation. Every conversation you have with anybody under any circumstance is some type of negotiation. And every single thing you have is a different tool. What you have to, I love this. This is a great question. There is this zone that you think about. And on the zone, one side is, is you and one side is the other person. And there's a thing that you guys will both agree to in that zone. And there's things that are table stakes for you. Know what those things are that you are not negotiating away. Those are things that you have to have. And then there's the things that you can give away. And the whole point of negotiation is to identify as quickly as you can what things you can move with and what things you can back away from and, or things you have to keep. So when you're negotiating with somebody, you always want to be as polite as possible. Like, look, I, I want to get this deal done. I can't wait to work with you, but I'm looking at this contract and it says I only get two weeks off. Like, I think that we could probably get pretty close if we could get this to, let's say three weeks, get three weeks. I think we have a deal. And they say, well, okay, we'll go back to my team. You're, it's like doing a car sale, it's selling anything. It's just sales. And you need to be the advocate for yourself. Most people would hire a lawyer like me and say, go get me the best deal possible. I don't want to get you the best deal possible. I want you to have a fair deal where both people feel, I feel good about this deal. And so what you want to push for when you're doing negotiation, let's say for a new job, it's that start date, it's that time off, it is that compensation. And those are the things that you probably care the most about. And the other things like that non-competition, non-solicit, you push those things away. And always, always understand that when there's an offer, there's a counteroffer. When you counter offer, you are rejecting the offer entirely. You are saying, I am walking away. Every deal you do, you must be prepared to say, eh, 
I'm, I'm walking away. Don't compromise. Don't compromise things that matter. How, were you always comfortable in those types of conversations? I mean, from when you were a kid going through law school, or was it something that maybe law school helped you out with a little bit? Like, give me an idea. I <laughs> was bad. I, I know there's a lot of people. Yeah. I was bad advocating for myself. So like, this is a little bit more history on myself, but I had a speech impediment. I had a stutter. And so I didn't feel comfortable speaking to anybody under any circumstance. I just didn't feel like I could do that. As I was able to do speech therapy and get the confidence and do a little bit of theater and other things here and there, I felt a little bit better. I am very good at advocating for my clients. I'm really passionate because the nice thing about being a lawyer is that you become a fiduciary. And that that's a special relationship that says, I put you in front of me. Me dies. Me goes away. And then I just get to fight for you. And I'll I'll fight is I'll fight hard. But when you're by yourself, when you're doing it on your own, you're like, okay, well, who am I fighting for now? And as I had children, that's when I learned how to advocate for myself. Because my stakeholders are now, you know, two boys, a wife, a little puppy who's kind of complaining in the background, and two twins coming. And I'll fight really hard for them, and I'll fight really dirty too. I don't care. I'm I'm not walking out of this fight. We're both someone's not walking out of this. And so <laughs> that has helped me. Being a parent has helped me become a better advocate. But it's a thing you can train yourself. Like negotiation is hard conversations, and it's important to learn hard conversations as you grow into any business like saying this as a service where you're convincing the customer to do a service that they don't really think they need like it's the same process this is solid gold my friend this is really really good stuff i appreciate you spending time with us today and and really i you know some of the questions i i learned so much out of and i i appreciate you taking the time to really break it down to where somebody like me can understand it i think that is such an important piece and something that is almost a lost art. I think there's a lot of lawyers that will try to talk above you maybe a little bit. And I think you did a really good job at kind of bringing it down and making it really easy to understand. So I genuinely appreciate that. I appreciate everything that you're doing in the industry. You, you're just a, an incredible guy. For those of you that aren't following him on LinkedIn yet, please get out there. Matthew Leffler, the armchair attorney. Anything else, any other the plugs that we can give to you, Matthew, or how do people get in touch with you? Here's what I'll tell everyone right now. You can find me on Twitter, armchair addy, A-T-T-Y, A-T-T-Y is the abbreviation for attorney. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn. Of course, I have a YouTube channel. I, I, what I want to Two things I want to talk about. One is it's incredibly important to learn how to explain complicated things. And that's the passion that I have. Like when I talk to a client about a legal issue or I talk to a client about a mechanical issue, I need them to understand it. So my own practice is to help my client understand what does this clause mean? What does indemnification do? Because if you don't understand it, I'm not doing my job. I'm not here to hide this mystery. Now, for every shop listening, Break Safety Week is coming up. It is going to be the end of August. Just to give you a little reminder, in Break Safety Week of 2021, over 35,764 35, vehicles were inspected. 12% of them failed. Talk to your clients now. Break Safety Week is something they have to be in. They, are, they know it's happening. And this is our opportunity as an industry to say, let's talk about preventative maintenance. Now, we're getting close to the wire. Here's what you do as a shop. You say, I bring in any vehicle you have. We're going to do a pre-trip. Drive it through in the morning. It's a 0.25 charge or a 0.2 charge. If you want to charge it, do an inspection, measure the stuff, and say, hey, let's do some repairs. 
no carrier wants to be caught off guard being inspected and failing, but 12% fail on this massive highways system we have. 12% will fail. This is an opportunity to help educate your client about preventative maintenance and be compliant with Break Safety Week. So that's my final piece, I would say, Jay. Amazing, amazing, amazing stuff. Appreciate you as always and, and look forward to the next time. Thank you, Jay. Thank you so much. <laughs>